So welcome everyone to the 110th edition of Data Bytes here at Data and Society. Those of you who don't know, Data and Society is an independent research institute focused on the social and cultural issues arising from data-centric and automated technological development. We have one final speaker tonight. I have Matthew Jones here. He studies and teaches history of science, technology, computing, and philosophy at Columbia University, where he is the James R. Barker Professor of Contemporary Civil He's writing a book on computing and state surveillance of communications, and he is working on data mining the critique of artificial reason, 1963 to 2005. Is that still the title? <laughs> a historical and ethnographic account of big data, its relation to statistics and machine learning, and its growth as a fundamental new form of technical expertise in business and scientific research. Can see why we enjoyed having him here <laughs> given that bio. We have really enjoyed your and benefited from Matt's historical perspective this year, and I hope you all as will as well. So he's going to talk to you today about data science, literacy, and ethics. Thank you so much, Audrey. So I'm going to start with a bit of illiteracy around data. The statement that was heard a lot when the first, first known revelation started coming out about five years ago, that it's just metadata. And that just is one of the key illiteracies that we need to, uh, as it were, stamp out. So you might say, what is metadata? And if you were to ask this question of some recent uh, court documents, you'd find this, that the government uses the umbrella term metadata to designate the categories of information it proposes to collect. This metadata comprises redacted categories. And it goes on and on and on. We simply don't know what metadata is, other than it's data about data, and it doesn't have constitutional protections under the Fourth Amendment. Now, why this is interesting is that a lot has followed from a, a, a set of beliefs that metadata somehow it does not fall under um, the way the Fourth Amendment has been rendered in understanding telecommunications. So in a couple of key cases, and I'm going to do a little bit of a deep dive and then uh, come out of this, um, uh, we can see how a, a logic which is fundamentally premised on a misunderstanding of the way data is used in just the kind of ways that we've just been hearing about from Ishab. So from a secret decision with a redacted name and date, we learn something crucial that, quote, so long as no individual has a reasonable expectation of privacy and metadata with a space, right, the large number of persons whose communications will be subjected to the surveillance is irrelevant to the issue of whether a Fourth Amendment search or seizure will occur. The court ruled, in other words, that it doesn't matter, in the case of metadata, if you collect the metadata on one person or hundreds of millions. There's no distinction with scale. Scale does not matter when you're looking at metadata. Now, you can see where the illiteracy is coming. The court continued, in a, in, in a few years later, put another way. When one individual does not have a Fourth Amendment interest, grouping together a large number of similarly situated individuals cannot result in the Fourth Amendment interest springing into being ex nihilo. Now, there's a lot of things one might say about this, and I'm particularly interested in how it is that the court system, as it were, has been hacked such that metadata does not fall within the Fourth Amendment. And I'm interested in the education of people in the judiciary such that this seems a reasonable set of inferences, that metadata at scale is no different from the metadata on one of us. We know this is not true. My interests 
are both the history of the law, the history of how this has been used by surveillance organizations, and the way the technological community has moved. Now, to put this incredibly bluntly, a difference in the literacy one might have about sort of classic undergraduate statistics and something which we might call a kind of data science is that in classic undergrad statistics, which probably some of these judicial figures are aware of, you're dealing with aggregation yielding generalizations and you don't have intense privacy interests. But with the advent of machine learning and uh, computational statistics at scale, massive granular data as all of you know very well, allows us to know or at least make predictions about individual better. That is, there's a massive privacy interest. And this process leverages quite price precisely scale. Now, we could say a lot of things about what the judges did and didn't do, but the point is that they don't understand this fundamental, or they've been made not to understand this fundamental thing about what's different at scale. And this is massively important. It's massively important both as a historical datum about our current legal situation, a legal situation in which the surveillance, um, uh, the, the, the legalities around surveillance in the United States are of crucial import in many other polities, particularly those in the, the allies of the United States, but beyond that. But it's also crucial in understanding a fundamental ethical project of what is it that we need to do to educate people to be citizens in a moment in which our technological abilities allow us to think differently when we think at scale. So I'm interested both in that historical project, and when I have my sort of standard academic historical um, effort, that's primarily what I'm doing. But I'm also interested in precisely what are some of the answers going to be to this vital ethical question of how is it that we train people to think about this differently, and how do we train people who aren't technical experts? How do we communicate about this? And that is why it's been such a privilege to be at Heritage Data and Society, because that is precisely the ambit here. Now, just to go back to the judges, I want, I want to say something about the bad faith in which a lot of these arguments have been made by people in our national security apparatus. Because they knew damn well that doing things at scale mattered. From right after the Second World War, the NSA underwent what is called the Traffic Analytic Revolution. And they write about it in their own histories. They describe the modern break, which is the recognition that cryptological attack can reveal information of value even when it is successful only in recovering the externals of intercepted communication. Now, what matters here is that the NSA, 50 years before the rest of us did, had vast amounts of database um, space and huge analytic tools. Actually, many of them, the progenitor of the analytic tools we use today, and they recognized that at scale, that set of things that we would now call metadata are precisely powerful in indicating and learning uh, about all kinds of people, the organization of states, the organization of what they called the order of battle, and generally unidentifying people uh, throughout the world. They understood these externals and they hacked them into the law in ways that are crucially important and something that I'm trying to track down. But it was not just the NSA that understood this. In 1984, a privacy activist drew this diagram. I recently put this on Twitter. Um, and the point of the diagram was to say that something very bad had happened in, uh, in the understanding of privacy around um, uh, the understanding of privacy around databases. So in the late '60s, there was a moment of panic about the, the, the constitution of a centralized national database. 
and that became legally impossible in the United States. In the wake of that, we got a Privacy Act, which only regulated federal databases and put strict requirements, or semi-strict requirements, on the way you could perform kinds of aggregations across these kinds of databases. Government lawyers got extremely good at justifying these. Now, as a result of this, instead of one giant database to rule us all, instead, we got a, a vast number of different kinds of databases. And each one of these, we individually agree to give our data for the purpose of that organization, whether it's department stores, debt collectors, credit bureaus, law enforcement, consumer organizations, um, vehicle motor, uh, registration, or other sorts of things. But lawyers within the government and elsewhere had become skilled at enabling computer scientists to, to match, as they said in the 80s, or merge this data in powerful ways and leverage scale. We had, we, had, uh, we had collectively, and each of us, agreed to give our information for a specific purpose, and it was being used for all sorts of other things. This is a situation we're familiar with. People understood this as select people, and they let it not be resolved. So my work here, and it's been an extraordinary year, has had three facets. And when I applied, I was brutally honest. I said, I'm not going to finish a book while I'm working with because I don't need that. What I want to do is actually be with lots of people who are thinking about these things from a lot of perspectives because I need to glean wisdom and knowledge from them. And my project has three facets, the third which very much emerged in the course of the year. First, the history of what has become known as data science is the history of machine learning, computational statistics, the various uh, places that's coming from, its institutional grounds, its international sort of thing. I could give you an entire lecture. Secondly, the connections between the data sciences and spooks, both funding and inspiration a tradition that goes to Bletchley Park, but far beyond Bletchley Park is crucial. And thirdly, and that's primarily what I'm going to talk about in my remaining time, is what do we do with this? How do we take the collective wisdom of an organization such as Data Society um, and begin to think about crucial questions of what is it that our citizens of the future need to be empowered with in order to contend with fundamental policy questions, fundamental questions of privacy, fundamental questions of surveillance, fundamental questions of what it is to be flourishing in a situation where data is produced about us all. Now, I've done a lot of this work in collaboration with um, uh, Chris Wiggins, who is the chief data scientist of the New York Times and uh, an instructor uh, along with me at Columbia, and in, in his case, in applied math and applied physics. And we in created a new course and the course, uh, and this is a, we, we gave a lecture and someone made this beautiful diagram. Uh, I mean, this, it's called Data Past, Present, and Future. Everything about it's online. And the hypothesis of the course is this. You know, it's, that there's important material being taught neither to future statistician nor to future senators. I teach at Columbia, so we have a lot of would-be future senators, right? Um, and that in material is both technical and humanistic. And in the course, we explicitly and always pair intellectual changes with political and ethical context. That is, no matter what kind of technical material we're entering, we always want to be asking collectively with the students, how do technological changes rearrange power? And ours is not a doom and gloom narrative, because many of those changes are very productive ones, and many of them are the dumpster fires that so many of us are working on. And we want to know prerequisites. We want code geeks, 
and we want ethics and legal geeks in the same room, and we want to leverage them. So in the course, we, we fundamentally say that the, the dream of sciences of social difference has been central to the development of statistics and the data sciences from late 18th century German to the present. There's long been a dream that there could be a kind of statistical reason that would explain human difference and that could be understood through data collection. And to, to, we cannot be surprised that we still see that resurge again and again and again. It is central to the history of the development of statistics and the data sciences. And I won't go through this all, but we run from the late 18th century through the high point of mathematical statistics up through uh, Cryptography, intelligence, the air winter, and our current moment when machine learning has been rebranded as artificial intelligence. The key moment and a huge breakpoint is indeed, as is so often the case in the 20th century, the Second World War. And for us, it is the bringing together of vast computational power to collect data and an intense development of tools precisely to work on it at scale. Most of this exists in the shadows for much of the rest of the 20th century before becoming central to where we are. Our persistent observation is that the dynamic of capabilities implies dynamics of power. It is always political. We jump off the course using favorite readings around here, Dana and Kate's Critical Questions for Big Data, Hannah Wallach's wonderful piece, which is amazing for undergraduates about big data, machine learning, and the social sciences. And then we end with, after going through much of the technical history, with the failures of research ethics, whether the Tuskegee study or the more recent things having to do with Facebook. When we talk about ethics, the class is at once intended to be a solution of a very small part of the question of what is our ethical answer going to be, and an instrument of reflection to make the students recognize the way in which ethics has, has both a philosophical component, what ought we to do, and an incredibly much harder, challenging, institutional one of how is it that we could in any way build this into our society at ways that scale. Because those people who would not have ethics are good at scale. We need to be good at scale. We don't have answers for that question of scale, but we want people to have a framework in which to talk about it. So I just want to end by going back to spies, black boxes, and ethics. So the beginning of the talk, I talked about the way the intelligence community um, hacked the, judicial, the legal system in a remarkable way, in a very knowing way, in a very un underhanded way. But I don't want to end on such that for a couple of different reasons. So in one of the Snowden documents, if any of you has, uh, any of you has, uh, clear, um, has clearance right now, you need to close your eyes, because this is a technically uh, classified document. Um, uh, in a special research report on data mining in JCHQ and NSA, GCHQ being NSA's analog in the UK, they noted this. A problem with the use of random forests, that's one of the key algorithms that um, underlies a lot of machine learning today, is that th their decisions cannot simply, be, uh, cannot be simply intuitively explained to an analyst. This black box nature can lower analyst trust in a prediction. Someone at NSA has been leading an effort to make random forests more interpretable. All of a sudden, we're in a weird world where the analysts at NSA share many of our deepest concerns about a black box society. 
about the way in which their traditional forms of understanding the world are being challenged precisely by the algorithms that are most predictively powerful and yet cannot be understood. That is, they are in the position in which their own ethos of intelligence and understanding is being challenged in ways that we see ramifying across many industries, forms of academia, and throughout our society. And it's a problem for them. In a remarkable piece, uh, some unknown person wrote that in the 1980s, the NSA valued accuracy, deep knowledge, thorough expertise. But in the 2000s, it was speed. Getting it right 80% of the time would make all the difference. And then a parenthetical that I find chilling and crucial for so much of our work. Of course, if it were targeting information, that would mean killing innocents 20% of the time. Thank you very much.